0: Welcome to the New Books Network. While the world is preoccupied with the ongoing threat of the COVID-19 pandemic, an older threat, terrorism, has not disappeared. In fact, the widespread upheaval, uncertainty, and global anxiety occasioned by the COVID-19 pandemic has been seen by terror organizations as a golden opportunity to tie their messaging to information about the disease and intensify their propaganda for purposes of recruitment and incitement to violence. Whether it's Boko Haram or ISIS or Hezbollah or the range of hate groups acting around the globe, terrorism continues to be a threat to decent people everywhere. Today's guest is a pioneer in the struggle against terrorism. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. You can subscribe to our series on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and wherever you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Nitzana Darshan Leitner to the show today to talk about her book, Harpoon, Inside the Covert War Against Terrorism's Money Masters, Nitzana Darshan-Leitner, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get right
0: down to the business of terrorism, since it's such an important topic and your work is so important in it. Legitimate armies are funded by taxes. How is international terrorism funded?
1: Well, the um, organizations that uh, we are all familiar with, uh, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, ISIS um, that are operating in our neighborhoods, receive their funding from uh, international sources, from states sponsor terrorism, from international banks that provide them with financial aid, Um, and from uh, Islamic charities, those who identify with their goals of the terror organizations, and they all file the money to the local chapters of these organizations. So you can see millions of dollars wired from uh, Europe, from United States, from Iran, from Syria, into areas in the West Bank, in Gaza, uh, in Iraq, in Syria, in South Lebanon, supporting these organizations.
0: Harpoon is the name of Israel's financial warfare task force. Tell us a little about what insights led to its creation.
1: Um, Well, Mayor Dagan, the former head of the Mossad, uh, was the um, legal the advisor for legal affairs in uh, for Arab affairs in the uh, National Security Council. Uh, it was back then in the uh, midst of the first intifada, and uh, he was trying to uh, help to fight terrorism. That was his, part of his job, and he was seeing what I've just described: that uh, millions of dollars are making their way from outside of Israel into the hands of the Palestinian organizations. And this money actually bring the terror organization to carry more and more terror attacks against Israelis. Um, Dagan, uh did not like wars. He was a warrior. He was a um, heroic fighter, but he disliked wars. So he was looking for other ways to fight terrorism. And he realized that uh, what he sees actually might be one of the uh, Um, things that create the infrastructure and maintain the infrastructure of the terror organization. So he realized that if he wants to stop the flow of the terrorism, he must stop the flow of their money. He went to the prime minister then, um, and uh, it was Benjamin Netanyahu, and he asked him to form a task force that its only goal will be fighting terror financing. It will include representatives of the uh, Shinbet, of the Mossad, of the um, Defense Ministry, of the IDF, of other ministries in Israel. But they have one goal, to follow the money that belongs to the two organizations, to target the money, to kill the money. Netanyahu agreed, and they established Harpoon, Silsal in Hebrew. And um, Harpoon was taking um, operations all over uh, the Middle East and later on all over the world, trying to tackle the terror financing. Now,
0: let's talk about one of the major terror financiers, and that's Iran. Um, it's been funding terrorism for decades via Hamas and Hezbollah, but not just in the Middle East. Uh, even in South America, some of our listeners might remember. Uh, back in the mid-90s, there was a horrific bombing in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, that in which 85 people were murdered and hundreds were injured, and Iran, through Hezbollah, was behind that. How does it continue to finance its proxies in various countries?
1: So... Um- you know, in the beginning, it was pretty easy for the, for Iran to fund Hezbollah, Hamas um, and other proxies uh, around the world, usually um, usually in the Middle East. But as you mentioned, in South America and, uh, and even in Africa, um, they were just utilizing banking system around the world to wire money. It was plenty. It was free. Uh, Iran's uh, had, including its budget, um, millions of dollars to support these organizations. So I remember in one time, there was $30 million allocated to Islamic Jihad, even before uh, they were supporting uh, Hamas. And, um, and uh, today, it was, um, a couple of years ago, it was uh, several hundred million dollars supporting Hezbollah. And they're not ashamed of it. So they put in the budget, they wire the money uh, through the banking system, and the money arrives in the hands of the terror organizations. Today is a little bit different. Uh, They are not so free to uh, wire money through the banking system. Actually, they can um, utilize some banks, not American banks anymore, which are under sanctions, but European banks. Um, and Lebanese banks, and uh, they're trying to avoid the American sanctions by using other different different, uh, financial institutes. Um, So it it makes it a little bit harder. Also, on the other hand, uh, the terror organizations themselves cannot utilize the banking system. This is a result of our cases against the uh, banking system. Uh, banks no longer agree to wire money to designate a terror organization or to open bank accounts on their names or, uh, or even to operate in terror zones like South Lebanon and Gaza. Um, so the money is, uh, is a little bit hard to receive on the uh, other end, which sometimes they utilize money changers, sometimes they utilize bringing money in cash, sometimes it's merchandise. Um, they uh, sell, they buy merchandise, and they sell it in the uh, terror zones. Um, and sometimes it's just uh, giving money to uh, to um, for for, to, for the terror organization to operate, and they uh, grab it through uh, drug uh, businesses, through stolen cars businesses, mostly uh, Hezbollah in uh, South America. So you you block them. Um, One by one, uh, path by path, they will find a way eventually to get funded, but it becomes harder and harder.
0: So the money is not just coming from donations, but it's coming also from uh, international crime, trafficking of drugs, weapons, even people. Absolutely. So there's an intimate link between terrorism and other forms of international crime.
1: Yes, because the terror organization is a criminal organization. They are busy in one sort of crime. uh, But in the end, in order for them to uh, make money, they can't uh, go to work. They can't have like white uh, collar jobs. They have to find other way to, for, to provide themselves and to provide their operations. And they are utilizing what crime organizations are utilizing, which is uh, drug businesses, um, which is uh, stolen merchandise, stolen cars, um, uh, faking uh, money. Um, and um, you can see it, uh, you can see, I mean, we're not so... Much familiar with uh, Hezbollah in South America, but we are all familiar with what ISIS did when they uh, everywhere they went, they um, took over merchandise, they took over, um, you know, artifacts, they took over um, oil fields, they took over drugs. Didn't have at this area, but they certainly got uh, money from uh, criminal businesses.
0: Yes, and they were notorious mm-hmm. in the way they trafficked in in women, uh, sex right. slavery. That's right. That's right. Uh, talk a little. Talk a little bit about the uh, the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in terrorism today.
1: Um, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, it sources in Egypt, but they have um, chapters and branches. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, in the form of Hamas, um, in the form of other Sunni uh, terror organizations. And um, they themselves trying to uh, hide um, behind their, uh, uh, I would say terror motive. Uh, They want to create an Islamic uh, state, they want to uh, have Islamic brotherhood. Uh, but in order to get their uh, to achieve their goal, they utilize they use their uh, proxies. They use their uh, chapters. Hamas was created in um, 19, uh, 1998, um with the uh, nineteen sixty eight with the with the uh, as, as a chapter of um, of the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, Egypt, um, and its goal was uh, as the same. To create a pan-America um, uh, Islamic uh, state, um, and in order to do that, they just uh, carry out uh, terror attacks. Um, they they try to do it in Egypt. They were uh, obstructed. They do it in uh, in Israel, um, and um, and and in the end, in the end. Um, this is why you can't really get into any agreement with Hamas or with the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, some people think that uh, you know, just some or concessions, or maybe providing Hamas with a better social or economic uh, benefits, uh, they will agree to uh, make some sort—not of a peace, but normalization—with Israel there is no chance to it because they don't care about the state of Israel. They care about their own uh, pan-Arabic nation, pan-Islamic nation, to achieve the goals of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, uh, Are they necessarily,
0: by they, I mean uh, terrorism, Islamic terrorism, international terrorism more broadly... Are they all religiously based or are there also some that are just nationalistic but secular? Talk about that continuum.
1: um, Yeah, you you can separate uh, between uh, the uh, Palestinian organizations in the sense that uh, Hamas uh, is religious based. Yes. Um, Hamas
0: is... and so is Muslim Brotherhood, as you and, pointed out. They right. were originally a chapter. Uh-huh.
1: Right. But the PLO is not... The PLO is nationalist. Um, you know, when Yasser Arafat was calling to a uh, to Palestinian state, um, the uh, Hamas uh, objected it. Hamas rejected it. Hamas thought that everybody should... Uh, Sit down on their mats and pray to Allah, to an Islamic state. They don't want a Palestinian state. Um, so the uh, and, and ISIS is the same. ISIS uh, has the same um, motivation and same religion ideas uh, as uh, as Hamas. Not necessarily connected to the Muslim Brotherhoods. Obviously, uh, they have their own. Uh, Craziness, but um, they believe that they are qualified. They believe that uh, they themselves should rule. They uh, want to imitate the uh, um, Ottoman Empire when uh, when they ruled all over the Middle East. Um, and but they are they are also uh, religiously motivated. So I think the only national um, and even Hezbollah, Hezbollah is Shiites. Uh, it's also religious uh, religiously motivated. Um, and uh, they want to uh, fulfill the goal of their masters, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and uh, to, uh, to again create one Islamic state but uh, governed with the uh, Shiites in uh, Iran. So, I think uh, just the PLO, you can say it's uh, it's a national um motivated terror organization. All the others are religiously motivated. Now, after
0: 9-11, the United States began to aggressively target terrorist financing as well. Uh, How does the U.S. Treasury Department's Office for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which was created back in 2003, how does that group relate to Harpoon? (laughs)
1: So, um, you know, Israel, unfortunately, faced terrorism for decades. And uh, when Mayor Dagan came up with this idea to fight terror financing, um, it was solely geared towards Israel to try to save uh, the country from a horrific wave of terrorism that hit the ground. When the Second Intifada started uh, Mayor Dagan was desperate to use his, um, his unit, his Arpoon unit, um, but uh, with no so much success. Uh, in the end, he just was an officer. in uh, It was official in the National Security Council. He uh, did not have uh, much power. In 2002, there was a new promissor in Israel, Ariel Sharon, and Ariel Sharon appointed Meir Dagan to become the head of the Mossad. Ariel Sharon was a good friend, and he's the former commander of Meir Dagan, and he trusted him to come and make an order in uh, in trying to solve the problem, the big problem of the Second Intifada. And um, so Meir Dagan now had a lot of power. He was the head of the Mossad. He could utilize Harpoon, which we need to remember consisted on different representatives from all the security and the intelligence services in Israel that not necessarily listened to Merida Dagan when he was uh, not in power, now came together and worked. And they came with uh, ideas how to uh, block funding that going to the uh, Palestinian organizations. And they saw that uh, a lot of this funding coming through correspondent American banks. A lot of the funding were done, most of the funding were wired in dollars, which must have gone through correspondent American banks. So they tried to um, draft to their operations the DA office, the uh, uh, the CIA, the one who are fighting terrorism in the United States. Um, with no much success, United States did not uh, uh, think that uh, this is how you fight terrorism. United States was hit with the September 11, um, and uh, they, their goal was to kill bin Laden. The war was the uh, war in Iraq uh, in Afghanistan. Um, they were more important things to go after than money that goes to the terrorism. But Mayor De constantly, um, worked to, um, to prove the opposite, uh, with the American authorities to prove them that, um, if you only dry the money, which is an oxygen to the terrorism, you can dry the terrorism itself.
0: And then uh, shortly afterwards, in 2003, uh, was the year you founded your NGO, Shura Tadin, which means Letter of the Law, the, and it's an Israeli law center. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so um, I was, uh, you know, I finished law school. I went into my uh, private practice. It was in the year of 2000 when the Intifada broke out. And uh, me and my colleagues saw that um, we're going to experience the same thing that we had in the first intifada. Buses are going to get blown up. Uh, people are going to get killed and stabbed on the street. Shoot, uh, drive-by shootings will uh, occur on a daily basis. And we decided that perhaps we can take a role in the war against terrorism to do what lawyers do best go after to the pocketbooks of the terror organizations. So we decided to file lawsuits against terror organizations and their financial patrons. We were looking and waiting for the best case to um, utilize our legacy. And um, here it came. It was October 2000. Israel called to a special military call-up and two soldiers were making their way to their base in Bet They didn't know their way so well. They made a mistake. They wind up in the city of Ramallah. And in Ramallah, they were pulled out of the car and drove to the police station in town. And uh, very quickly, the rumor was spread that there are two Israeli soldiers arrested in the Palestinian police station. The mob began to arrive. They demanded the policemen to bring down the two soldiers. They wanted to lynch them. But the Palestinian policemen refused. Instead, they did the job for the mob and for half an hour they were stabbing and beating the soldiers to death. Um, hmm. I was watching the TV as the arrest of the people in Israel and we saw how the Palestinian policemen threw the body of one of the soldiers to the mob which totally lynched the body, they threw it to shreds, it lit it on fire. And we thought that um, this is the best case to start our uh, initiative, to see if we can sue the one who is responsible for this lynching. Because in any other country, the police and the state would be found responsible for this murder and they will have to pay So we went and filed our first case in the District Court of Jerusalem against the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian police for this lynching case. And then we filed more cases against the Palestinian Authority. And also in the United States, we filed cases against Iran and against Syria, state-sponsored terrorism, uh, on behalf of victims that were killed in Israel by Hamas, by Islamic Jihad. And after two years, we started winning cases in court. We started receiving judgments for hundreds of millions of dollars, liens on hundreds of millions of shekels, unprecedented decisions in the courts. So we were approached by Harpoon, by Mayor Gun soldiers, to see if uh, we can work together, if they can give us evidence that they accumulated in their operations um, against the uh, banks, Perhaps we can bring losses against those who wire money, who actually physically bring the money from outside of Israel into the hands of the Palestinian uh, terror organizations. And if we can extend our activities against the uh, Palestinian Authority, which I must remind you, um, in the middle of the Intifada 2000, uh, we had the Dolphinarium discotheque with 28 people getting killed and the... uh, Park Hotel massacre over Passover Seder, 30 people getting killed, and the Moment Cafe, 18 people getting killed. Like, it was a horrible, horrible year. So we um, could not do it anymore as private lawyers, and we established Shurat Hadin, Letter of the Law, to take all these hundreds of cases and file them in orderly manner in the courts around the world.
0: That's, uh, that's quite an achievement, and you've had some very significant successes. Uh, can you tell us about one or two
1: of them? Um, yeah, with pleasure. Um, <laughs> since then, we are representing hundreds of terror victims in lawsuits and legal actions against the PLO, against Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Authority, Iran, Syria, North Korea, Arab banks, European banks, Chinese banks, Lebanese banks, and the social media. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google for aiding and abetting terrorism, and we've been successful. We were um, we received two billion dollars in judgments, and we were able to collect three hundred million dollars on behalf of the terror victims. One of um, one of our major success was uh, uh, our case against the banks. Uh, as a result of these cases, no bank agreed anymore to open bank account to a designated terror organization. And no agreed to uh, operate in terror zones. Um, But the banks usually settle the cases out of court. They don't want to have a judgment against them, recognizing them as aiding and abetting terrorism. So when they pay the money, it goes directly to the terror victims and uh, it brings a relief uh, to the terror victims. Um, I had a case where... um, was a young girl, 17 years old. Uh, She was walking with her brother, 15 years old, coming back home in Sderot, when the red alert went off. Uh, This is the alarm that goes on when the missiles are falling from Gaza. And in Sderot, as we all know, there are only 15 seconds to find a shelter. So she was walking down the street. It was a bare street. There was no building, no bus stop to hide underneath them. The only thing that went into her mind is to protect her brother. She fell over her brother. She covered him. The missile fell right near their hands. Many shrapnels went into their both hands. She fought for seven days on her life in the hospital. She died. Her brother mm. is disabled for life. So the father of this uh, girl came to me in the end of the case. Oh, I'm sorry. We filed a lawsuit against, we were asked by Harpoon if we can file a lawsuit against a major bank that provided financial services to Hamas at the time. And uh, we filed the case and uh, it got uh, settled. So the father came to me and told me that, you know, thank you for letting me fight back. Thank you for getting me my integrity back. I feel I'm no longer a victim. So this is what these cases do. And um, the, uh, I, c- I can tell you that um, just recently we received a lien for half a billion shekels on the uh, Palestinian Authority money uh, for similar terror attacks that were done in the Second Intifada. And in the United States, we won $655 million judgment against the Palestinian Authority and the PLO for attacks that happened in the second intifada um, and this money eventually will go to the terror victims. we do not win final judgment in these cases but um, but the amount the, the the of judgments and and rulings that the courts agreeing to give is significant is um, is unheard of and I think this is the most um, The biggest achievement of Shurata did to bring the courts to understand that uh, they cannot go even uh, in case of terrorism, that they have to express their shock um, and they have to have a say of how much money terrorism costs. And this is the message that we want to send to the entire world, that today, you cannot kill a Jew and go without pay. That Jewish blood is not cheap anymore. It's actually very, very expensive. And um, I know that after they received the uh, judgment in the United States, granted by a jury in a trial uh, that went for 50 days, and a New York jury ruled. That the Palestinian Authority is responsible for act of terrorism and um, had them to pay $655 million. The Palestinian Authority leaders could not believe how the little money they gave the terrorists before the attack, how the weapon they provided them before the attack, safe haven they gave them after the attack, turned in the end of the day to hundreds of millions of dollars in judgment against them.
0: And your work, I believe, has also been instrumental in changing international banking laws and procedures, uh, not just because of terrorism, also because of drug money laundering. I mean, there are many factors, but your work indeed, I believe, is part of that, that banks are really much more careful about who's putting money in who's taking money out and what for do, do you feel
1: you had a role in that i think i think so yeah i think that uh, after september 11 united states went into an emergency mode and um, because uh, you know training the terrorists of uh, september 11 and uh, keeping them on the ground for uh, 2 years until they carried their attack and the whole involvement of Saudi Arabia, um, uh, the, the Prince family, uh, with the attack showed the American that it's not a joke, showed the American that uh, um, the money is really driving terrorism, and they have to be much more careful in uh, the way that terrorists are wiring money. So they came with the Patriot Act. They came with the due diligence regulations that the bank's supposed to do. Um, and they, they imposed the uh, uh, banking system to be much more cautious when they open bank accounts. However, it didn't help. It didn't, uh, not didn't help, it wasn't sufficient. Because at the same time, banks, outside of the United States, wired money freely, openly. Yes, it went through the United States because they all use correspondent banks. Yes, it went through benches in the United States. But if you weren't um, using the money in the United States, you could have used the American banking system to, um, to send your money from uh, Jordan, from Syria, into the West Bank, from Iran to the hands of Hezbollah, and um, showing you that uh, as a correspondent bank or as a um, through-branch bank, it wasn't enough, the, uh, the acts and the laws that United States legislated. So when we filed our cases against banks, we filed them in New York for aiding and abetting terrorism, because all these banks were international banks and they all had branches in New York. No matter if this bank specifically wired the money or not, the mere fact that they have operations in the United States granted jurisdiction. So now Mm -hmm. the banks are in a deep problem. They are facing... Multi hundred million uh, dollars, you know, lawsuits against them. Uh, They are facing judgment that may come and say, You are aiding and abetting terrorism. Now, show me uh, the Congress allowing such a bank to continue operating the United States. And then, where banks totally change their policy. That's brought the banks to, um, to do the due diligence much harder, mar- much more cautious than they did before, take, uh, uh, you know, very, very tough steps to make sure that the money is not going, not even to Islamic charities that identify the terror organizations. They were very, very careful. Um, you know, and today, if you want to open a bank account in the United States, it's not going to be easy. <laughs> It's not that yeah, they drive you crazy, right? <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, due to our cases, it you know it hit both ways. But um, today, no terror organization can uh, can utilize the uh, westernized uh, banking system.
0: And, and uh, have you done work in Europe as well? Because uh, Europeans have their own point of view on many things, uh, but they have also been victimized by Islamic terrorism a lot in recent years. That's true. That's true.
1: So uh, our first cases in Europe um, were, again, in the time of the uh, beginning of the Intifada. Um, So I'm talking on the uh, beginning of the century. And um, like, for instance, when uh, when, when we get a judgment against Iran, against Syria, we try to collect it. And the way for us to collect it, because, you know, Iran and Syria are not going to come and pay, is to um, seize assets that belong to these countries. So one day we hear that um, the National Oil Company of Iran has a bank account in Rome, which has half a billion dollars in it. We took our American judgments against Iran and domesticated them in Italy. Uh, we filed a motion for domestication, and along with this motion, we filed a motion for a lien to seize the money, meaning you know, to get a restraining order not to let the bank shift the money around or not like, let Iran take the money out of the bank account. And uh, to our surprise, the court granted us the lien and called for yes, It was an really? Italian court yeah. to come and stand on behalf of the victims. That was amazing. Court uh, uh, called the hearing before him for all the parties um, in ten days, and then for the first time, Iran that never shows up to court in the American courts, not only sent lawyers to court the. Uh, they got the Vatican involved. They sent lawyers to court. They got the, um, the foreign ministry of the Italian government involved. They sent lawyers to court. The national oil companies sent lawyers to court. The, um, all the banks that had relationship with Iran sent lawyers to court. They were sending them for half an hour, screaming at the judge in Italian. <laughs> and they had two arguments. First, service. Service is not correct. You didn't serve Iran sufficiently. Uh, It wasn't adequate to notify uh, Iran. Twenty lawyers were standing there in court, and yet they said the service was not sufficient. And uh, the second argument was that, um, to the substance, you know, that you cannot uh, seize assets that belong to the Iranian government to satisfy a judgment against, I'm sorry, you cannot seize assets belong to the National Oil Company of Iran to satisfy the judgment that belongs to the government of Iran, they are not the same entities. They don't share the same assets. So we could uh, argue against the second allegation. We brought experts, international law experts, to testify that in regimes um, like Iran, there is no difference between the national oil company to the uh, to the government, and they belong to each other. They share the same assets. We also tried to claim against the uh, other argument, and we claimed that we did sufficient service to Iran. But the court wanted to go on the safe side and ordered us to reserve Iran. In the meantime, he took off the lien. One hour after uh-huh. he shifted the lien, Iran took the money away from Rome to Thailand. Of course. <laughs> so we were... Um, it's a funny case because uh, when, I, um, the, when, when the case was over, I was called to the, uh, to the Harpoon unit agents and they urged me to tell them how the case went and how successful we were. And I said, we weren't successful, we lost the money. But they said, no, as a result of this case, Iran never came back to the Italian court, to uh, Italian banks and put its money in Italy. Can you do the mm-hmm. same thing in Germany and France? So, <laughs> so this is what we did in Europe. We actually chased the Iranian from utilizing the euro, which was the second hard currency that they could use after they were restrained from utilizing the uh, dollar. And Iran at the time was funding the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, terror organizations. I mean, the Palestinian organization which use only. You know, dollar, euro, or shekel. So, by obstructing Iran from using the hard currency, we obstructed them from funding terrorism. This is this is what we did in Europe back then. Today is a little bit harder. Uh, we again, when we see assets like uh, we recently had the oil tanker of Iran uh, landing in uh, Gibraltar um, and stopped there by. Um, yeah, for the UN. Yes. so we immediately you know hired lawyer from Gibraltar, filed a motion for domestication, file a lien on this uh, oil tanker to try to receive the money for the uh, terror victims. Europe is a little bit harder. We enforce our judgments there after we gain the judgments mostly in the United States and Israel
0: mm-hmm. you You mentioned uh, Facebook. Uh, it, what, what is your view of the role of social media in enabling international terrorism? And what do you think should be done about it?
1: You know, today, um, the terror organizations, like the rest of the world, is using the social media networks more and more for a variety of things. They, um, not only for communication, Uh, Just for you to know that the uh, Brussels attacks and the uh, Paris attacks uh, happened all on Twitter. These terrorists that um, were responsible for both attacks um, organized the entire attacks on Twitter. The the, uh, designated organizations teaching how to kill on YouTube. They send videos illustrating how to stab, where to stab, what poison to put on the knife before you go and stab, how to create explosive material, how to go and uh, uh, put a bomb and hide. They really give lessons through YouTube. They incite to kill on Facebook. They send posts, they uh, send speeches, they send uh, inciting um, uh, calls, to go and kill innocent people. So the social media became a tool in the hands of the terror organizations that they never had before and cannot do without. We came into Ratadim uh, five years ago uh, when the uh, knife intifada started in Israel and say that in order to stop this intifada, you must stop the incitement that today is going on on the social media. And we brought the first case against Facebook for aiding and abetting terrorism. We filed a case in the federal court in New York on behalf of five families that lost their loved ones in stabbing attacks in Israel and um, for, for $1 billion. And we said Facebook has to be found accountable for these terror attacks. So Facebook, and here is the catch, um, claimed that they are immune. There is a law in the United States called the Communication Decency Act that at Section 230 of it, now it became very, very famous, Section 230 grants blanket immunity to social media networks from content. Meaning, the Congress in 1996, when they legislated this law, wanted to keep the internet open. They didn't want to consider the social media networks or uh, internet servers as publishers because they realized that it will be very, very hard for them to monitor each and every post, tweet, or um, pages that are run by users they don't control. So they granted them blanket immunity and the social media networks using this immunity to allow anything to go on their platforms. Hamas, that in the United States cannot open a bank account, can open a page in Facebook, can open an account in Twitter, can open a channel in YouTube. So this is this is a, a, a competition or, or um, a dispute between two laws. The one that forbids Aiding and abetting Terrorism, which is the Anti-Terrorism Act, a law that does not allow any American company to provide any sort of services to a designated organization, versus the Communication Decency Act, a law that grants blanket immunity to social media networks when it comes to content. Our cases are litigated now in the courts in the United States. We filed other cases against Twitter, against Google, on behalf of terror victims, not only from Israel, victims of ISIS, from the Brussels and Paris attack, from Istanbul attack, um, to stop this incitement to terrorism on the social media. And in the end, the Supreme Court of the United States will have to rule which law Governs which law should be uh, apply when it comes to terrorism. We came that Section two hundred and thirty, which you know recently came to the news uh, because what Trump did with a section, saying that the um, the social media networks cannot both be a censor to my speech and ask to be not to uh, be considered as a publisher. Uh, versus the um, versus the Anti-Terrorism Act. Um, it's only for the Supreme Court to rule, actually, if in cases of terrorism, there should not be immunity. And this is our goal. Our goal is to change the policy of the social media networks internally, entirely. Uh, it will be very hard to regulate Facebook, or Twitter, or YouTube. It will be very hard to come and say you cannot put terrorism on your sites because it's very hard to define terrorism. But if the social media networks themselves come with an internal policy saying we no longer agree to have terrorism on our site, this is how we achieve our goal. Because in the end, words can really kill. In the end, Terrorism should be uh, off the Internet. There should be zero tolerance to terrorism on the Internet.
0: You're right. It is hard to define it and to define the limits. But yes, in the end, it has to be, uh, be, uh, be eliminated from recruitment, through fundraising, through incitement. Yeah, it's, it is a terrible part of society today. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, Nitzana, what is pay for slay? And where does that money come from?
1: So the uh, pay to slay is a policy handled by the Palestinian Authority, which pays the terrorist compensations. They pay the terrorists who are sitting in the Israeli jail um, awards for their deed. They give them monthly payments, monthly salary. Uh, they give the, uh, if, if uh, there are suicide bombers who got killed or terrorists that got killed in their attacks, they are paying stipends to their families. They are awarding the terrorists for the acts of terrorism they carried out. Um there is no question that this money calls for more terrorism. People, It's not only not moral, but it, it really bring other terrorists to uh, imitate and go in the ways of those who are getting rewarded. And um, there is a cry out in the world to stop this policy, not only by Israel, by the United States, by Europe. Um, it's absolutely uh, it's something that should not be Happen. However, the Palestinian Authority does not listen, the Palestinian Authority continues this policy. The Palestinian Authority, I think, even if you sanction it and even if you impose a boycott and even if you condemn it and if you take any act against it, will ever, ever fund the terrorists, will ever continue this pay to slay policy. They could not do without. It started with the PLO with the Yasser Arafat in 1968, awarding those who sacrificed uh, their life for the fight for uh, Palestine, and they will ever continue doing it. There are some um, laws that uh enacted in the United States and in Israel To stop this policy, for instance, the Taylor Force Act in the United States that um, calls to uh, deduct from the uh, United States aid to the Palestinians any money that the Palestinians are paying the terrorists. So if the budget of the um, pay-to-slave policy annually is $300 million, um, it's getting cut from the um, aid that the United States gives them. In Israel, they tried to legislate a similar law. And um, there is a system in Israel that uh, Israel collects the taxes for the Palestinian Authority. And in the end of each month, they give it to to them. Uh, And Israel also wanted to deduct this uh, $300 million. And they kept it for a couple of months. They kept it aside, but under international pressure for European Union. Um, they uh, paid it back uh, to the hands of the Palestinians. So there is no way uh, legally, uh, no, legislatively to, uh, to fight it. I can tell you that uh, in Shorat ad-Din, we, um, we are trying to go individually after this money. When a terrorist commits a terror attack and sits in jail, he receives a salary we file a lawsuit against the terrorist itself. We get a judgment because he already was convicted with a crime. Sorry. And then we can take it to um, the uh, uh, to the court. We get a judgment against the terrorist. And we enforce it against the payments that he receives from the Palestinian Authority. If the Palestinian Authority does not want to pay us his salary, we go and take it. From the tax money that Israel collects for the Palestinians. So, for every shekel that the Palestinian Authority pay the terrorists, they have to pay an equal shekel to the terror victim of this terrorist.
0: Well, let me make sure I understood what you said that the EU uh, is not in favor. Of withholding money that goes to pay terrorists after they've done their their crime. <laughs> they they agree that they should get a salary and a reward
1: for doing it. So they don't phrase it this way, Rene. <laughs> uh, but indeed they come and say You cannot withhold money that belongs to the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority relies on this money. The Palestinian Authority's budget is $3 billion. $2 billion of it is the tax money. Two-thirds of this budget is held by the Israeli government. The Israeli government cannot, according to the European Union, withhold this money. Otherwise, it will collapse the Palestinian Authority. So the the, the European Union, in principle, is against this pay-to-state policy. We see that Britain, for instance, withheld some money from their uh, annual aid or donations to the Palestinian Authority because of this policy. Norway, believe it or not, or Belgium, did the same thing. But it's a drop in the bucket. The main budget, as we see, comes from the Israeli government. And they have the, uh, the power to perhaps put a pressure on the Palestinian Authority. But as I told you before, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because you can squeeze and you can dry out the Palestinian Authority's money. They will give the last shekel. This is what Mahmoud Abbas said recently. The last shekel will go to help the prisoners and the suicide bomber's family that sacrificed their life on the jihadi war. Well,
0: Nitsana, you have been very generous with your time, and I appreciate your insights into the uh, inner workings of the war on terrorism. Thank you for your hard work on behalf of the victims, uh, both past and future people who won't become victims. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time to be on the show today.
1: Thank you so much, Renee, for the opportunity. Uh, It really was a pleasure. And thanks to our researcher,
0: Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.